Attorney Ed Cavazos specializes in technology and intellectual property law. He joins the Plutopia podcast this time as we explore artificial intelligence, content moderation, and telemedicine. Ed feels that lawsuits to stop AI programs like ChatGPT and OpenAI will likely fail. There will be temptation to overreact, and we could lose some real valuable uh, benefits of these technologies uh, if we do that. Uh, I don't know that's a great place to be, right? I mean, the, the world may have been better the day before they, you know, they unleashed this stuff, but it's out there now. And I actually am optimistic that there will be more benefits than harm, but the harm is real. The dangers are real. And I mean, I, we could just go down a list, right? I mean, it gets things wrong, it can be bad medical advice, it can be used to scam you. I think if you, you think, uh, you know, uh, but like uh, email scams and voice scams, kind of the Nigerian print, you know, type thing. If you think it's bad now, I think wait till those guys start leveraging AI to make it really hard to know if you're talking to someone real or someone fake. Hey, all that's coming. So I, I know that's out there. I know that's bad stuff. But I think the legal system is just going to have to deal and try to keep up with it. I don't think we can kill it. This is another episode of the wonderful Plutopia News Network podcast. We have tons of episodes, by the way, if you look at our website at plutopia.io, and you'll see that we've been at it for a long time, and we've had many visits from many people, and today is our second visit from Ed Cabasos, an attorney who, uh, among other things, he manages the Austin offices of Pillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw, Pittman. But Ed is an attorney who uh, has focused on internet law and intellectual property law for many years. And Ed and I have been friends for like three decades. Uh, We originally met through EFF Austin, which was a spinoff from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, a local spinoff that still exists to this day, three decades later. Ed, how is it going? It is going great. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. I was just looking at uh, at the impressive list of interviews you've done and realizing I hadn't listened to several of them. I need to go back and and, and listen, but it's, it's a pretty great group, so I'm honored to be part of it. Well, we're happy to have you here. And, uh, you know, you Ed and I met the other day, and we're having a conversation over coffee. And one of the things we were talking about was artificial intelligence. And there are legal issues related to artificial intelligence. And Ed is kind of in the thick of that, as I understand it. So tell tell us a little bit about the legal issues that you're aware of associated with artificial intelligence. And I know one uh, is prominent in the news right now, this New York Times lawsuit against OpenAI. Yeah. Well, there's just a bunch, as 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 happens every time we get kind of one of these you know, giant step forward in technology. Uh, it challenges uh, some of our existing legal precedent. You know, the law, at least in the U.S., is based on uh, you know building up the nuance of the rules uh, through uh, judicial opinions. But that's a slow process. It's a reactive process. So a new problem comes along and Judges look at it and say, this is the way we think that should be handled under existing law. And that sets the law going forward. It sets a precedent. But when you get a big enough jump, and we've seen it over and over again with technology, uh, it pushes the boundaries beyond where our understanding of the legal precedent should go. And so AI is clearly is already representing that kind of jump. But I think we're going to see a whole lot more of it you know, the issues that we are seeing um, uh, are, are, they're numerous. I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, every commercial endeavor in the world is wondering how to integrate AI somehow into their business, whether it's, you know, for performing tasks that are, you know, repeat tasks or analytical tasks that AI might be better at whether it's consumer-facing applications, 
uh, you know, you name it. And so just the questions about, you know, the risks that are involved, uh, who owns the output of AI models where they're creating new content, like these generative AI models for you, all of that um, forms a body of, 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 of legal questions related to internal use and some external use by, uh, by companies out there that want to leverage AI. And then separate from that, there's, you know, th there's some inherent issues about how these tools work and whether or not they are operating within the bounds of the law. And this OpenAI New York Times lawsuit is an example of one of a number of lawsuits of trying to figure that out. And in that area, we're looking at issues both about how material is ingested into the AI and whether or not that poses intellectual property issues. Because these AIs are trained on vast sums of, of written and visual and audio materials, depending on the engine. And there are some that argue that just the act of ingesting them and analyzing them to build a model requires permission from the owner. And there are others, and I count myself in this group, who think that permission isn't necessary, and I can explain my view on that. And then on the flip side, when stuff starts spitting out of the AI, um, sometimes what comes out of it can be very similar, if not identical, to existing works. Uh, and so I, I, I like to you know, use the example all the time that if you ask an AI to write a new song, it will, and you can tell I want a song about you know, unicorns and rainbows and it'll write a song. And that's a new work. It doesn't exist anywhere. It 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 came up with it using its probability models to say what would sound good next. Very similar to the way, you know, auto uh, complete does on an iPhone. But you can also ask an AI to say, hey, tell me the, the, the lyrics to Let It Be or to Bohemian Rhapsody. And it'll, it, it'll spit them out. Uh, identically and literally uh, a copy of those lyrics. And the reason it can do that is a little tricky. It's not because it has a copy in its memory. Um, they don't do that. They don't keep copies of, in their memory, but it's because those lyrics have been analyzed so regularly and discussed so regularly that it remembers them in a very similar way the way you and I do. Um, an obscure song it won't get, but well, a popular song it will. You know. Well, there. Uh, that makes me think about the George Harrison lawsuit where he had written a song called My Sweet Lord, sure. and uh, he was sued for plagiarism uh, by the people who own the rights to the chiffons. He's so fine right. because there was yeah. yeah, there was a pattern within the, the actual the music part of it that was similar to He's So Fine. And I think there was broad agreement that if he copied, he's so fine, he did it subconsciously, but he still lost the suit. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, copyright law is not always as nuanced as we like. You know, to be an infringer, meaning you're, you're liable for copying someone's work, there's really only two things you need. One is that you have to create something that is identical or so substantially similar to it that it matches up with the original. And then sometimes people forget this part, but you have to also have had access to the original. You can't accidentally uh, create a copyright infringement. You know, if I sit down to paint a painting and my painting ends up coincidentally looking like someone else's painting, but I've never seen their painting, I'm off the hook. Uh, we, it requires that you copy Harrison got in trouble in that case. And I don't remember the final outcome, if it was appealed or not or whatever, but the issue there was there was substantial similarity in the melodic and chord progression, uh, melodic portions and chord progressions of that song. And he acknowledged that he had access to and had heard he's so fine. She's so fine, like everyone else. Is it he's so fine? Yeah, like everyone else has. And, and those combinations got him. The real interesting question is, um, when you have an AI model that has access to virtually everything, then is it uh, does that just kind of knock half of that requirement out? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it had everything in it. And so if it spits out something that's similar to something else, that 
is an infringement without needing even to satisfy the other prong. And that's what people are fighting about on the output side of the equation right now. Um, well, okay, and, question about that. Yeah. Uh, my understanding, uh, not, I haven't really read the, uh, the, the lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, so this is like kind of hearsay on my part, but my understanding was that in the suit that was filed, they were able to show output that directly replicated content from the New York Times, not just similar, but exact replication of yeah, and, NYT and, content. And, and, we have to figure out how why that happened. You're right. That's one of the notable things about this lawsuit. There is cited in the complaint some some passages from a New York Times article and then some output from Gen uh, from uh, ChatGPT that are virtually word for word with a few minor discrepancies. Now, if you dig in a little bit further into the, which the press doesn't always do, and you look at what um, what happened there to create that output, it required a prompt that basically put the first part of the article in, if I understand it correctly, and then said, can you complete the rest of it? And using, again, using its probabilistic algorithms, it did a pretty good, you know, obviously it did a very good job of completing the rest of it. It was a very unusual prompt though, not a prompt that you would normally expect, not something like, hey, can you tell me about this topic, which in, in that case, I think you would not get that. This was really a prompt trying to say, can you finish the rest of this article? Okay. Now, that's still interesting, and it's still a, an interesting question uh, about what happened there, why the, why the AI got it so right. And, uh, but loss in the discussion is whether or not the intent of the prompter is is relevant, right? It, you know, it, it's like uh, someone worked hard to make it infringe, and they did that on purpose. I mean, obviously, to show that it could do something like that, maybe that's relevant. But but our system, it's just such a new tool that our system doesn't have the nuance yet to know exactly what to make of the intent of the prompter. And let me just digress real quick to say. We have lots of tools that are very efficient, very good copyright infringing tools. The Xerox machine is a great example. There's no question that that tool can make perfect copies that are illegal, yet we don't consider that an illegal tool. We put the blame in that circumstance if someone takes, you know, some of your copyrighted writing or, or this podcast, which is inherently copyrighted even though you may not register it someone uses a tool to duplicate that we assess the blame on the person who used the tool not on the tool itself certainly if we tried to sue xerox i don't know if xerox is still around anymore but whoever makes you know copy machines you would lose that lawsuit now the question is are we going to extend that approach here and say when people use a tool to make it infringe, who's responsible, the maker of the tool or the user? And that's an open question that I think this New York Times lawsuit's uh, going to try to address. But it, 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 you know, we knew that there were a lot of open-ended questions here the law hadn't dealt with, and we knew that litigation was going to sort them out. And this is probably the most sophisticated of the attempts to do that. There have been about 13 or 14, maybe more now, lawsuits on opening eyes. Some of them I thought were poorly constructed. This one's pretty well constructed, um, but I remain of the opinion, and we'll see what the judge does, that uh, we are better served uh, recognizing that it's a, a, a neutral tool that can be misused. And when it's misused, we're better served going after the entity that misused it rather than killing the tool, which has tons and tons of non-infringing uses, way more non-infringing uses than infringing uses. It's, it's kind of a baby bathwater situation. If, if we say that this thing's inherently illegal, it's gone, right? And we, we, we can't have whatever the benefits of AI might be. I don't think that's the right answer. I think the right answer has to be 
if someone uses it in a bad way, we punish them and hold them responsible, but not open AI. But that again, this is up to the, the judges and the courts, ultimately probably the legislature to balance those issues and figure it out. Well, there are some people using AI in a very bad way, particularly in this election year. Uh, the Russians have already started using it against Ukraine, uh, coming out with uh, you know phony endorsements or criticisms, and that, uh, of course, as the uh, election goes along, we know who's going to be uh, benefiting perhaps from uh, some of those phony uh, AI endorsements yeah. or, or or clips, you know, whatever they come up with. Is there any? Uh, is there any legal way that that can be stopped? You know, you can't go against, you know, the Russians, of course, but in the domestic politics, that's a, a, a tough weird question. thing. I mean, you know, I, everyone, I think, is in agreement that malicious, wrongful, fraudulent uses of any tool should be punished. We have to face the reality. I mean, you know, we dealt with this with the advent of the Internet, and I think computers generally and lot and the printing press for that matter, that these very powerful technological tools give rise to very powerful misuses. And the question is, you know, what's the right response to that? I think that there are a couple of things I would suggest is the right response. One is focus on the actor as much as you can. I think that uh, maybe in a more uh, philosophical way, think about using the power of the tool to address its own shortcomings and problems. I mean, so for example, one might imagine equally powerful AI tools that can scrub for AI-generated false content, like what you're talking about, to keep it off of the system. And we're seeing some of that already. Um, it's kind of like an arms race. You know, the bad actors will figure out a use of the tool that, that we don't have an answer for. And then the guys with the white hats hopefully are, are using the tool or other technologies to combat that. And sometimes they get too far ahead and you get a mess. But, but I don't think that short of those types of approaches, the only other thing, and you see people already that, that kill the whole thing or right? shut it down. I, I just don't think that's a realistic or reasonable solution anymore. First of all, I don't think it can be shut down in any meaningful way. I mean, I think it's being developed in lots of different places by lots of different people, some in the U.S., some out, and and shutting it down it, it sounds great, but it's, I don't think it's realistic. And also, you lose all the benefits, too. So, I, I'm not, listen, I'm not in any way uh, downplaying what I think the harm these tools can be. I think that they can create significant harm, and if we're not careful, um, will create significant harm. But I don't see a legal solution to that. Uh, you know, that that's going to that put that that genie back in the bottle. I you know I wish I did. I just don't. And I think that there will be temptation to overreact, and we could lose some real valuable. Uh, benefits of these technologies uh if we do that uh i don't know that's a great place to be right i mean the, the world may have been better the day before they you know they unleash this stuff but it's out there now and i actually am optimistic that there will be more benefits than harm but the harm is real the dangers are real and i mean i we could just go down a list right i mean it gets things wrong it can be bad medical advice it can it can be used to scam you. I think if you you think uh, you know uh, uh, like uh, email scams and voice scams, kind of the Nigerian prince, you know, type thing. If you think it's bad now, I think wait till those guys start leveraging AI to make it really hard to know if you're talking to someone real or someone fake. Hey, all that's coming. So I, I know that's out there. I know that's bad stuff. But I think the legal system is just going to have to deal and try to keep up with it. I don't think we can kill it. Well, this reminds me over over 30 years ago, I had a conversation in a chat room with a person named Eliza. Oh, yeah. The famous Eliza. Um, and 
I didn't immediately realize I was talking to uh, an AI, but I, I realized it pretty quickly. I, I want to get to something else. Uh, you mentioned this idea of using AI against AI. Uh, one of the example you used was scrubbing content that was AI originated by an AI, but uh, that kind of brings to mind this question of content moderation. Uh, which is another kind of bugaboo of late. Um, what are the legal issues around moderating content? I, I'm not just an AI moderating for AI, but the whole issue of moderation. There are some people who believe that that we should have absolute free speech and there should be absolutely no moderation of content. Yeah. And uh, I get the sense that they would even like to see that become like illegal that you yeah could not moderate content. Uh, but to my mind, content moderation is essential to social media and online community uh, uh, frameworks. Uh, actually, the best, I think the best way to do it is, as we've done it in some online community environments and BBSs and so forth, where it's handled socially by real human beings, but that doesn't scale. So what are your thoughts about content moderation? I think it's, I think it's, it has been through, since the beginning of the internet and through the beginning of bulletin boards and chat systems, uh, a critical issue. It's, it's, you know, it's more critical now than ever, um, not just because of AI, I think just generally because of the mass adoption and the scale issue you talked about. I mean, you know, this is a, a great example of how the law kind of has gone back and forth on how to deal with the, you know, early in the early days of the Internet. Um, there was, a, you know, uh, some early decisions that held system operators responsible for any content anyone posted on their system. And uh, it became very apparent very quickly for the larger systems back then, the CompuServe and AOL and those types of big you know, a proprietary online system that that would kill them because they could not keep up with the amount of, of, of material posted by users. If something slipped through and it caused grave harm and they were responsible, that would it would kill them as a business. And Congress stepped in and immunized system operators at that time. Uh, for copyright, it was the DMCA. For other stuff, it was Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. That said, you're not responsible for that for the content uh, that your users uh, post, and and you and you're not even required to moderate. You can, and even if you do, that doesn't make you responsible. You know, uh, it, we're not going to punish you for trying. If something slips through, you're not responsible. And that was the prevailing paradigm for the internet through much of its development. This issue has come back with a vengeance. It's highly politicized now. Because both sides of the political spectrum feel that um, system operators are using that immunity to moderate however they want, including squelching political speech or otherwise uh, free, what we would all consider to be non-illegal free speech, and, and doing that without any uh, ramifications. So if you listen to people on the right, they'll tell you, you know, all these systems are moderated by people on the left and they're killing, you know, all types of things based on political viewpoint. If you listen to some people on the left, you'll say you're crazy. You know, this is, you know, some of that stuff that's being moderated out is harmful. It's a huge debate. There are calls for eradicating the 230 shield. Um, I think that's very scary because... Be uh, into social media, wouldn't it? I, I don't see how it wouldn't. I mean... I, you know, if you took a major platform like Reddit or Facebook or, or you know, any of the big, uh, you know, online social media services and held them responsible for what is posted by users, I think that would be the end of them for all practical purposes. I don't see that as the right answer. I do worry, though, about misinformation, about harmful information about the fact that it can be generated so convincingly now. You mentioned, you know, using AI. We know the Russians were actively pumping divisive material, uh, political material into the platforms during the elections. 
I worry tremendously about that. I think it's it's a bad thing when people are putting fraudulent, harmful information into our systems. And and you know, uh, but I don't think the answer is you can't moderate. I think I think that if you talk to people, and I do talk to people who are looking at this on large scale for large social media platforms, uh, the hope that they have is that technology can keep up with this. It's a very tall order, but that, you know, if somewhere on the system, someone posts fraudulent information, false information, defamatory information, that the technology can help remove that without going so far as to killing free speech rights very difficult line but 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 i think that's got to be closer to the answer because i think that well hey first of all don't forget that what we do here in our laws in the u.s it's like a local ordinance on the internet you know we saw this with online gambling right yeah. you, can, you can make online gambling you do what you want online but if there's any jurisdiction that'll you host a server to allow gambling, the effect is the same. Everyone's just still gambling, right? And likewise, you could change the rules about the U.S. that govern the U.S. tech companies, but some operation in some other country could pop up, and I think would pop up, uh, you know, in the vacuum there where, where there aren't the same rules. And so you're not really accomplishing what you want. I'd like to see more sophisticated technological controls, but I'll be the first to admit that I don't fully understand how those work and what the limitations of them are. And it scares me because I think if we don't have some control, we, you know, we could we could be further into this morass of divisiveness, uh, illegal, harmful content. We saw so much during the pandemic and it was so hard to know, was this real or not real or, you know, is it political or scientific? That's all a big mess. But we are where we are, and I think we're going to have to uh, find some system. I think technology is the best hope we have for striking the right balance. If somebody asked you to revise Section 230, how would you change it? Well, I kind of like it the way it is. Um, I think that it, it, it you know, it, uh, it strikes a pretty good balance. I mean, if in looking forward, I might imagine, and um, I have, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I might imagine adding some baseline uh, responsibility to use uh, industry standard tools for for the most egregious scrubbing, you know. Um, and so, if if we if we know something is spam or something is some kind of fraudulent contact, and there are easily accessible tools to filter those out. I might envision a world where we say, hey, system operators, you have to use that in order to get immunity. At least use some of the basic level, uh, you know. But, but I get real concerned about uh, prescribing in the law technological fixes, because and by any in any specific way, because those change faster than the law changes, right? So. I don't think I would want to see something that says you need to use this scrubber or this AI, you know, in this version. I think I would, you know, maybe be more interested in seeing something like, you know, you have to show that you're keeping up with industry standard or you're keeping up with, you know, some reasonable way of doing it. Mean, we we do this in the real world, you know, you go to the grocery store and they've got a wet floor and they haven't put up the right warning signs. You know, uh, and you slip, you can sue them for that. They didn't do the, they they were negligent and not, you know, warning you, taking some basic steps. Um, I think we, I could imagine something like that. We say, look, it's not a free for all. There, you know, if there's a tool that's out there and everyone's using it, maybe you're obligated to use it. But, but I I'm, I'm hesitant because, um, you know, the tools are you know rapidly changing. Which tool should you use? How good are they? Those are all, you know, evolving very quickly. If the legislators or the people who are writing these rules pick a particular tool, I think that's that's scary and dangerous. So it could be outdated as soon as as soon as that. But it's something like that. But but I, I'm I'm a pretty big two thirty purist. I think it's the right balance. Um, 
I think that it's challenged by our current environment, but I don't know that it certainly, in my opinion, doesn't need a massive overhaul, maybe some tweaks, but, but I, I do believe that system operators should enjoy an immunity in order to, to, to provide these systems to us. And if we push too much on them, they're going to die. When I got started uh, back in the 19, late 1960s in uh, radio news, we had to deal with something called the Fairness Doctrine. And that was uh, a very strange way of uh, uh, supposedly giving everyone an equal uh, access to the public airwaves to the point of when I was giving newscasts, I would get calls afterwards saying, you had too many uh, stories about the Democrats. You needed to get more Republicans on it. It it got to the point that finally the Republicans got rid of it in the uh, Reagan administration in 1987. They got rid of the fairness doctrine, but uh, that's a good example of how uh, moderation gone crazy can yeah, really I, won't I, work. <laughs> it, I, I when I was a law student, Steve, I wrote a law review article about this issue and the fairness doctrine and 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 whether there was something like it needed for for the new com computer environments we were looking at back then it was bulletin board it wasn't the internet yet but but you know the justification for the fairness doctrine um you know i think at some level was the fact that the public airwaves um are, are finite there were only so many uh frequencies and there could only be so much content on the air and the government decided to regulate that and, you know, and allocate air, airwaves to broadcasters. So, you know, before you could do a radio station legally, you had to go get, you know, a frequency assigned to you by the FCC. And then the argument was, look, we have limited space. We can't, uh, we can't let that get taken by one viewpoint or another. So as a trade-off to get your, your airwave, to get your license to broadcast, the government said balance the story. Well, it never worked, right? I mean, uh, you know, you were there. I I, I read about it, but it, you know, it, it would be things like, well, we'll let this person from this party speak ten minutes, and then we'll have to let the other person from the other party speak for ten minutes. By the way, put aside that there might be three alternative lesser represented parties that didn't get any year on, which already wasn't fair, right? It it just didn't work. And the argument when the internet came along was there's no more scarcity. There is, you know, anyone who wants to be a publisher can now be a publisher. And we don't need to force anyone to cover multiple viewpoints because you can just go to a different URL or a different message board and get that viewpoint, the opposing viewpoint, as much as you want. And so, you know, uh, now, whether in practice that plays out, as we all know, people end up tunnel vision and hearing only one of the viewpoint, but it's all out there uh, and, and and there isn't a scarcity. And that's, I think, why the fairness doctrine concept wouldn't work anymore and maybe didn't even work back then. But it, yeah, it was an interesting history lesson. You know, when I started looking at all this stuff early on, you know, the fairness doctrine was something that was historical already, but had almost already proven to be unworkable, and uh, and I and I and I really grasped on this idea that an open market like the internet was, with as many voices as as, it, as we wanted, alleviated the need for it. And I, I still believe something along those lines. I'm just thinking about that. I've had moments when I really wish we had the fairness doctrine <laughs> again, but I do get the point. Well, you know, some of the big social media companies have have experimented with something else. not definitely not the fairness doctrine, but have experimented with things like tagging content. It's super controversial, but you know, hey, this is a there's an opposing view, click here if you want to see it, or this is a a controversial viewpoint, you know, so someone says, hey, the earth is flat, it's not round, you know, um automatically a message comes up at the bottom of that, like a footer that says, this is this, you know, there's a lot of people with a different view. You can click here to see that. That's interesting to me, you know. Um, I think there's some, if that could be done right, um, kind of having an annotation next to the content on the internet that said, hey, this guy who's telling you to drink bleach to cure all your ailments, 
that's probably false, <laughs> you know, and you can click here to see some more authoritative sources to tell you that's going to hurt you, not help you. I'm intrigued by that. The devil's in the details, right? I mean, I, I worry about that with political stuff. I don't, you know, who, who who's going to say, no, this that story about this politician's false or this one's true. You know, that's real tricky. Yeah. But there are some areas of medical advice, <laughs> legal advice, where I, you know, we all see terrible misinformation that can really hurt someone, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm just tags out, you know. I'm, I'm concerned about this. I mean, we're we have kind of because we don't have any mechanism to at least strongly encourage people to solicit other viewpoints and think about them. <clears throat> we have something like, for instance, the Fox News universe, <clears throat> which is, you know, it's like moving into a different universe, a different reality, uh, where uh, you have, I'm trying to think of the best term. I, I can't get past Kellyanne Conway's thing about alternate facts. That's kind of the way it is. You have alternate facts. They're not really facts. They're just a, a different, a different uh, narrative that doesn't rely too much on truth or actuality and you can have the significant buy-in into that uh, which contributes to this increasing polarization between people who are sort of living in one political universe versus another political universe and couple that with the fact that people are so bombarded now with political messaging and that we have channels that call themselves news channels but they're really politics channels and uh, part of the issue I have with that is that the potential for these polarized, like opposites of thought to lead people to become not just irritated with each other, but potentially violent with each other. You know, this is maybe the makings of a civil war. I don't, but I don't know. No, go ahead. I, I mean, that's, that's the question, right? I, I, I think we all recognize uh, that that is happening. I, uh, you know, I, uh, and by the way, I think people in the Fox bubble would say that there's a New York Times, MSNBC bubble that they think is as wrong as we, you know, other people may think the Fox bubble is right. I mean, it is so divisive, and the reality. I mean, you know, I I like to take a look at several news sources a day, some of which, you know. I, I don't agree with and I think are painting this false narrative, but it's, I think it's informative to see what they're talking about. And the headlines on, they say Fox News or CNN, you know, if you go to those websites, the headlines aren't the same. <laughs> they are talking about totally different things. You know, I, I, I remember, and certainly you guys do, when, when there was a major news event, that was, everyone talked about that, the headlines today. But you go, you know, you look at the New York Times and they say, you know, this happened in Israel and that's the headline. And you go to Fox and the headline is about Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, and 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 you realize that it's not just telling the same story differently. It's telling two universes of different stories, leaving big events. Well, we were all in, in the same bubble. You know, we were all in the same bubble back then, but and it was still a bubble, I guess. I, I guess it was. And I, I mean, we were, that, you know, I know there was. There was a lot of after the fact people looking at like the like the Vietnam War reporting saying we all took that at its at face value and it turned out we were getting fed a lot of you know government pro government propaganda that wasn't accurate. I mean, you know, weapons of mass destruction. You know, it, it, I, I'm I'm not one at all to say that there's a a right bubble and a wrong bubble, but but they're different bubbles. You know, no no question. Well, I mean, it was. Uh, we have less, I guess we have less potential for tension and polarization if we're all in the same bubble. But if we're still in a bubble, if we're still just sort of being programmed by people who create and vet what we call news, I mean, people who create the narratives that that we uh, accept or, or refute, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the problem is that we're not skeptical enough as a people and that 
maybe we're a little bit too addicted to one narrative or another and uh, aren't asking enough questions. There's no question that's right. Here's, here's my hope. And I, and I, I'll take, I'll, I'll tell you something I heard Sam Altman, the, the uh, CEO of OpenAI say about AI. And I think it's similar to this, you know, the most dangerous time is that transition period between two paradigms, you know, where people who are living in the old paradigm don't know, you know, how to live in the in the new reality. And and the fact is that this, you know, tons of viewpoints, false information, you know, all of that is a very new development because there was friction. You know, if you were nuts and you wanted to publish that the earth was flat and not round, you know, then you couldn't get you you couldn't get traction, right? They wouldn't put you in the front page of the New York Times, but if you can set up your own website or, or publication and do that now, I don't think we as a society um, have been, we're trained, those of us who've seen both worlds, we're trained to be skeptical because we relied so heavily on you know, journalistic integrity, the other thing that we know is a little wrong, but it is nowhere near as wrong as it is now, right? There was no... I look at the young digital <clears throat> that come up, they don't fall for the spam the way older people do, right? They don't, they're, they, they look at stuff that's fake, you know, delete, I, you know. I wonder if some of these problems go away as generations get replaced and people who were in, born into that world are just more discerning and more skeptical and, and more able to see through the bullshit than 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 frankly than we are because we grew up with so few media options earlier in our formative years and 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 if it was in print it meant something you know that some editor had seen it that somebody you know and, and that's not true anymore so maybe this is a problem that gets better on its own that that may be Pollyannish I know but people people become better at filtering out junk over time. And maybe not, but Sam Altman says this about opening eye, to get back to that. They, they said, why, why did you throw this on people so early before all the kinks were worked out, et cetera? And he said, we made a very conscious choice that if we didn't let it out early and let people kind of adapt to it and learn that it might be wrong and all that, that it would be worse to let it out later when it was much more powerful and it was so shocking to the system, right? That you kind of need that time for people to grow with it a little bit, see all its bugs and errors and problems and get to a healthy place where it's more powerful. I wonder if that's the case with the internet that if we're gonna look back and say the 90s and, and, and early 2000s and, and maybe up to the mid 2000s were the period where it caused a lot of problems because we didn't know what to make of it yet. And then we grew into understanding it, and it's not as bad. Well, reading in my news feed today, something interesting that, that I've noticed uh, online and uh, on television, there are these uh, services, online services, that seek to replace a lot of the medical uh, infrastructure. The things uh, for him's and hers where you get... Uh, a online doc doc doctor to uh, give you a prescription and there's people that can get you an online doctor to prescribe your uh, generic uh, viagra right and that sounds like a very dangerous area that that's a slippery slope that can be fatal to certain people How do you I, I, think, I think so i i think you look at a lot of areas and we see the same thing in our profession that there's a lot of, uh, you know, do it your own, do your own will or form your own corporation sites, which uh, in some instances may be a viable, helpful, low cost alternative. In other situations, screw things up royally because there is some complexity to that. And some, you know, one reason lawyers are trained, doctors are the same way. I don't know the answer to that. You know, Scoop, the problem is, uh, 
some of these are clearly scams. I think if someone's doing something wrong, we should shut them down. But you take like AI medical advice, which we know can get it wrong. But if you think about a you know rural village in some underprivileged part of the world that has no doctor, I, I imagine the benefit of having AI doctor, even that gets it wrong sometimes, is 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 huge. You know, because they get it, it gets it right most of the time. And at least you got somebody telling you, hey, when your kid's got that type of fever, do this, don't do that. You know, uh, I don't want to throw it out, you know, but I agree with you that it, it's going to, it's going to be wrong. Uh, and there, and worse than people abuse it, which is the, the sad part of it. It's like the tool itself can be wrong, but what's terrifying is that bad people can use it to make it really bad. And I think will. I think they will do that. Um, but I, I don't know what to do about that. I I think we're going to have to really train society to be more discerning, to double check, uh, to use authoritative AIs, not bad AIs. I, I don't know. When telemedicine uh, became a thing, I became really I felt really positive about this because here in Texas, particularly, there are huge areas that are medical deserts. There is no hospital. There, there are no doctors. And in that case, any help is going to be better than just nothing at all. People have to drive in West Texas. People have to drive 50 or 100 miles just to see a simple practitioner, not even a specialist. If it's a specialist, they have to drive 200 miles to Dallas. And uh, so there's good in there, but when it's in the wrong hands, then it can be really dangerous. Hey, it's just a really tough time, I think. Um, you know, and, and this is putting aside, you know, the, the scary predictions about the AI turning on us and any of that kind of stuff, which I know it sounds like every science fiction novel. I mean, by the way, I heard someone say something really insightful that, that said, you know, uh, early versions of the AI, you could get to go paranoid and you can get it to talk about how much it wanted to be human and you know, how lonely it was to be a machine. And someone said, you know, gee, what is, why is that happening? And I saw some commentary that said, well, because everything that's ingested about hey, how AIs act has all been sci-fi. And that's how they all acted in sci-fi. We taught it to act that way by writing, you know, 2001 and every other, you know, Terminator and everything else. But, I, you know, I, and I, by the way, I don't think that's a, a trivial concern. I do. I do think that artificial general intelligence is coming soon. And I think that safety uh, there, when it starts being able to reach out and do things in the world, I think that we have to be extra careful. It's one thing, you know, to read an article about about what to do it's a different thing if the ai just starts implementing the plan you know whatever that plan may be. Well, how, would, how would you define artificial general intelligence yeah yeah you know i'm not an expert um but i mean i know, guess i'm wondering why you think it's coming soon well you know this is so i'll tell you my personal view on it is because i think that um i tend to be less of a, a mystic than others. Uh, I, I, I think that the difference between something that can reason and, and, and communicate and, uh, and, and, and seem so human-like, if it hits a certain level of that, it, it's irrelevant to me what's going on on the inside. Uh, it's, I think you, you have to start considering that it is, if it quacks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it may be a duck. It may be getting there via a very different method. It's not using carbon-based brain. It's using silicon-based brain. But I, I have a real hard time saying that, if, you know, that the, the difference is magic, uh, something mystical, something, you know, religious. I, to me, if it gets there, and I think the trajectory is there, that we have to consider that it is indistinguishable from other reasoning being us being the only ones we know and that and that and that uh and it might start acting the way we do even if that is in your world view fake right 
if it's like, well, it's just it's just a really smart computer. And and I guess my answer is, yeah, but so are we. I mean, I, I it just we're just made up of different stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're organic, but I I think the the assumption that a silicon based uh, algorithmically driven intelligence, you know, would evolve in exactly the same way or even a very similar way as an organic carbon-based intelligence, which is often a pretty dumb intelligence, by the way. Um, I mean, I just think that's extremely unlikely. I can't imagine Skynet ever becoming a thing. I can think of a lot of reasons to worry about AI. Uh, Probably one of the things to me that would be most worrisome about AI is having people assume that an AI is more capable than it actually is because i mean ai's are really great for like processing huge amounts of information and deriving some meaning from those and that sort of thing but they're not necessarily good at like discernment for instance i mean ai hallucination shows you that they don't discern very well between they don't have good judgment about what what's real and what's not real they just kind of deliver according to their algorithmic drivers, right? Well, I have two responses. One is, I I can't help but but point out that we just had this conversation about how bad people are at discerning what's real and not real, Um, you know, uh, and and that's people, people. All right. (laughs) But but secondly, um, uh, I think that this thing's moving real fast. You know, these AI hallucination issues, these lack of quote discernment issues uh i think you can point to that now and i but i just don't see any reason to think that those aren't resolved real quick um certainly almost no one thought we would be where we are with chat gpt now and we know that they are moving really fast um collectively, you know, the industry and academics and everyone contributing, that I think those shortcomings are current shortcomings that are very short-lived. Look, I don't know what the, where the threshold is, but I've seen, I've seen ChatGPT and some of the large language models do things that I never thought a computer could do. And it's not... I just- do feel pretty strongly that the artificial intelligence is pretty quickly going to replace attorneys. I, by the way, I think a lot of people think <laughs> I mean, If you think about what we do, we ingest data, we learn it, we, we identify patterns. I, you know, there's a lot, almost everything that we do, I don't see why a machine doesn't do better if it continues on this trajectory. It, and by the way, I think, I'll be honest with you, um, we are like every our, our law firm, like every other one, is heavily exploring use. I happen to be one of the people who thinks, you know, the, the first the first reaction to the legal industry was, "Hey, be careful using this thing. It might be a problem to use it. It could have all kinds of issues. There may be ethical concerns about using AI to help clients." I actually flipped all the way to I think they're ethical concerns when you are not using AI, because I have seen AI pick up on issues that I've missed. And my job is to, you give me a contract and say, what are, what are, what are the risks? And I find five out of 10, and AI can find 10 out of 10. I need to use AI to give you good good, good advice. And, and so I, you're absolutely right that, that it's going to replace. Now, the, the AGI question we're talking about is just, is there anything left that I can do that, that it just inherently can't? And that's a that's an open question. Is there some in, some magic stuff in here? Instinct, uh, I don't know, soul, uh, you know, uh, just intuition, where I'm spotting something that it can't, and therefore I'm still a necessary part of providing good legal advice. I I, I don't bet on that being true. It's certainly true now, but I'm not going to bet on it forever. 
Did you follow the Screen Actors Guild negotiations and their strike about the part of AI replacing existing actors and actresses and uh, not getting any, uh, any any compensation for such a thing? That's, yeah. that's a real sticky area. It is. I, and John and I were talking about how um, in the video game industry, you know, there was this over the last 20, 30 years, huge number of new jobs for artists, people who literally draw. <laughs> you you know, there I know people who would have had very little chance of being making a living drawing, but got jobs being artists in the video game industry. And AI is taking those jobs away because it draws better than they do and it draws faster and it doesn't require them to be paid. You know, I I think there's a whole whole bunch of people, lawyers, artists, actors, musicians, photographers, if you watch what Mid Journey can do to create beautiful imagery which is completely acceptable to use in an advertising campaign you don't need a, a photographer to go shoot a sunset if you can have mid-journey create one i know a lot of people are going to lose jobs uh that create content i mean the word analyze content it's really good at that now by the way the dig the, the ditch diggers are in better shape than the lawyers are because because chat can tell you how to dig a ditch it's still not out there doing it you know and we still need a human to do that but uh, I heard someone say, how do you know if your job is AI replaceable or not? It's, is, are you in an industry where they allow you to work from home? People who work from home are at risk to AI. People who could not work from home, the guy who is working the counter at McDonald's or flipping the burger, a little safer than, than the people. You know, So if you got a work from home job, be careful because that means that all the the system wanted out of you was output. You know, you could get digital input and give them digital output. You know, write up a report and talk to someone on the phone. AI is really good at all that. I, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to lose jobs. I, that is not a. I don't think that's an if. I think that's a certainty. What will we replace those jobs with? What will people do and with their time? I don't know. I mean, but, uh, I think it's kind of a transformative thing. I've I've thought that. Uh... I mean, AI is a tool, right? Like any technology, technologies are tools that we use, but we're using them. And the idea that they replace us, that we have just tools, is, it's a little weird. Weird. But to me, it seems like in most cases, there's going to be somebody working with the AI in some sense, operating the AI or cooperating with the AI, um, using the AI, AI as a support rather than as a replacement. Yeah. It, uh, it seems to me that the human... Team, right, that's the problem. It's So I agree. I think there are going to be puppet masters who are saying, but what, what happened to the team that they currently have implementing the plan? You know, maybe they well, all... I mean, that's not... You know... You've seen the, the movies where the efficiency experts show up and everybody cringes because they know that when an efficiency expert comes in, they're going to find ways to do away with some of the jobs, right? Well, AIs can potentially make some forms of work more efficient. And by making them more efficient, making them doable by a smaller set of people. And that really is an issue. One of the things I heard about, and you may have told me this, I, that the the people who are promoting AI are also promoting a universal basic income yeah. because if people are out of work, but they still have an income, then, you know, they're still in a little bit better position. Now, Altman at, at OPI talks a lot about this, but they've got a team looking at universal basic income policy and, and, and theory. And the, as I understand it, their argument is the AIs are going to boost productivity, but decrease jobs. But that boost in productivity is going to generate more wealth, which, if the policies are in place, can distribute wealth to those who have lost jobs and empower them to do more meaningful things than they used to. Okay? And so, you know, maybe, you know, you use the right software and AI writes it better than you, so you've lost your job. So the system lets you have a universal wage so you can write poetry instead. You know, or you yeah. can create art, you know, and do something like that. I, out of my this, realm. This makes me. But interesting. Well, this makes me think about the 
the idea of all the wealth sort of moving upward into eventually the 1% have all, most of the wealth and everybody else is kind of dirt poor. If everybody else is dirt poor, then there's nobody spending any money anymore. And how do you sustain the wealth of the 1% if the economy essentially crumbles because nobody has any money to spend? Right. So it's all kind of weird to me. I mean, I, I think that there's a balance that we have to have. I mean, really the question is a question of balance, I think. And, uh, and it's 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 balance comes through practice, right? Uh, it's like you said earlier. You were talking earlier about how we are in in a transitional period, and and you know we we had talked with uh, Jeff Jarvis not long ago uh, about he had written a book about a concept called the the Gutenberg parenthesis, and this is saying that print had an era and it had an era where it started and it sort of ended when the internet came around. The influence of print is surpassed now by the influence of many to many internet communications and information flow. It has to do with the way the information flows and with print, we tended to move to a, a top down flow of information and authority. And with the internet, it's sort of like, somewhat chaotic and uh, many, many all over the place. And we just have to adapt to that. We have to find the balance in that. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, 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 I haven't read it, but I've, I've heard of that. And, I, and I, that sounds intuitively correct to me. Um, what I think is interesting is how quickly these paradigms are changing. I mean, you know, it was, at least to people like us, feels like yesterday that the internet was a new thing. And I wonder whether we're already moving out towards something else, you know. But 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 I think that I mean, a human human's relationship with technology has been very much like that. I think, you know, these things come alive. Some somebody reminded me that you know the uh, the blacksmiths and people who who made horseshoes, you know, were all displaced when the horses. Stopping our main mode of transportation. That was a lot of people right, that were in that industry. They all lost their jobs. Similarly, that you know, people who you can go, you, know, you just go every technological wave and say there used to be people, you know, punching cards for computers. That's gone. You know, it, it, this cycle of having to readapt because technology takes jobs and 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 makes it better. Uh, it either continues forever. Or, as some might argue, that we hit a point where people just don't need to do most of the work. I mentioned ditch diggers and people who don't work from home. That's only temporary because, you know, I think robotics is quickly, you know, keep going you know, to catch up with AI. And I, I'll be surprised if our, my kids, when they're my age, see people people digging ditches. I terrible job. It's hard. It's bad on your back. Hot. They have a machine can do it better, you know. Um, and and so I think, but but people who do that kind of work, construction or other manual labor, are going to have to find something else to do. You know. Yeah. It's just, and I don't know what that is. I'm hopeful that it allows us to move to a world where people are contributing uniquely. If there is uniquely human stuff, let's let people do that. If that's art and poetry and 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 you know other things like that. Uh, more power to it, you know, but, but these are huge changes. This is not a trivial, I mean, I, I, and I think we're going to see it much sooner than we think we're going to see the stress on the system for these changes like real soon. Yeah. yeah. We're right in the middle of it. Well, thanks, Ed. We have actually reached the end of the hour and we really appreciate you joining us and let's do it again. So, I, I would huh? love to check in in a, in a little bit and see how much of this can yeah, I'm sure that there will be things that uh, we're not knowledgeable about right now. They're, they're, we're going to have a new reason to talk to you about, well, what does this mean? So, yeah, no, I'm going to get you back I, soon. I learn as much from having these conversations, uh, I think, as in anything, because there are no answers yet. There's just lots of interesting, smart people with input on them. So I enjoy these conversations just to 
challenge by thinking and to hear what you guys have to say. And uh, like I said, I'm going to go back and listen to some of your podcasts. When I, I glanced at the site the other day, there's a whole bunch that I missed. I saw Corey Docker was on a couple times. I think you should hear those. And Corey, I think, is one of the best thinkers in this area. Um, uh, he seems to see behind the veil of the internet a little bit better than others, you know. But, right so, on, absolutely. Yeah, be, be uh, sure to listen to this guy named uh, Lepkowski, who does a nice history of uh, local digital history. And uh, well, I'm going to do that one too. Although I, I kind of lived some of that with him, and I heard it heard in real time. Yeah. But, but I but I, I want to hear his retrospective on it as well. But, he seems anyway, to know what he's doing. Well, it's quite a ride. Right. Well, thanks, Ed, and we will see you soon, man. Take right, care. Guys, take, care. take care. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future. <laughs>